Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kumar. And I'm Rahul Demania. And we are coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. Welcome to our episode of a 16-year-old girl with fever and rash. Here's the case presented by Rahul. A 16-year-old female presents to the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit with generalized weakness, fever, and a diffuse rash. To go into history, three days prior to admission, she stated that she was feeling lightheaded and the day after she started having non-bloody diarrhea. She states that she has otherwise been healthy, no sick contacts or travel, and the only change in her life was her menstrual cycle, which ended a few days before her symptoms started. She also states that about two weeks ago, she went to her primary care physician to get an ingrown toenail drain, but was able to recover with some analgesia and antibiotics for a week thereafter. On day of admission, her mother brings her into the emergency department as she says her rash continues to progress. And the mom states that the rash looks a little bit like a sunburn. The mother noticed on day of admission that her daughter's eyes were red and injected bilaterally, but it did not have any discharge. And with her fevers, the daughter was increasingly confused. Of note, the patient has also had decreased oral intake as she says her mouth hurts when she swallows. She has had no sore throat, congestion, dysuria, or headache. She presents to the emergency department febrile to 39 degrees Celsius and tachycardic to 130. Of note, she is ill-appearing and has orthostatic vital signs. Her exam is notable for a palpable diffuse myalgia, oral pharyngeal hyperemia, diffuse erythroderma across her body, and conjunctival injection. She is noted to have a hyperdynamic precordium and faint crackles bilaterally. Her left toe, which was drained a few weeks back, is mildly erythematous, but there's no discharge, necrosis, or even pain to palpation. Acute resuscitation and diagnostics are begun, and the patient is transferred to the pediatric intensive care unit. So Rahul, to summarize the key elements from this case, this patient has a history of fever and multi-system involvement, including GI manifestations, myalgias, confusion, mucositis, and a rash. This is in the setting of a local drainage procedure and a course of antibiotics. In addition, she presents now with fever, hypotension, and tachycardia. All these elements so far bring up a very broad differential. But for now, we can agree that it seems that she has signs of acute inflammation or infection throughout her body. Let's transition into some history and physical exam components of this case. Pradeep, let's take a step back. What are some key history features? that you look for in a child who presents with fever and a rash? Rahul, understanding the characteristics of the rash, the evolution and progression of the rash is very important. In the setting of myalgias, fever, headache, and a rash, you should always think of assessing for any recent travel history because tick-borne illnesses commonly present with this type of symptomatology. You also want to assess for any recent antibiotic exposures, sexual history, and surgical history. In our case, the patient had a recent procedure done on her toe. Are there any red flag symptoms or physical exam components which you could highlight? 
Absolutely. When a child presents with fever and a rash, it is important to stratify two major elements. You want to assess the degree of toxicity in relation to the symptomatology. Lethargy, irritability, altered sensorium, poor perfusion, pallor or sinosis may all indicate serious illness. Understanding the duration of fever in the setting of suspected total body inflammation is important. However, the importance of the height of fever in predicting the risk of illness uh, severity is unclear. We will visit a differential a bit later in this podcast. However, I do want to highlight that the presence of tachycardia and tachypnea in any patient with fever and rash suggests the possibility of sepsis. Rahul, when you notice these red flag symptoms, it is important to focus on resuscitation and treatment rather than pursuing diagnostics. To continue with our case, our patient's labs were consistent with an AKI, with their creatinine being three times the upper limit of normal, a transaminitis and indirect hyperbilirubinemia, thrombocytopenia, pyuria on a urine analysis with negative leukocyesterase or nitrites, and finally an elevated CPK at about 2,000 units per liter. Looking ahead in this case, our patient had negative serologies for Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, leptospirosis, and measles. All right, everyone. So to summarize, here we have a 16-year-old female who presents with fever, diffuse erythroderma, signs of systemic inflammation, and multi-organ dysfunction, all of which bring up concern for toxic shock syndrome, the topic of our discussion today. So Rahul, let's start with a short multiple choice question. A patient presents with fever and rash and concern for staphylococcal toxic shock syndrome. Which of the following describes the mechanism of pathogenesis behind this diagnosis? A, increased toll-like receptor 4, TLR4, binding with lipopolysaccharide, LPS. B, endotoxin production. C, increased MHC2 binding with the T-cell receptor. Or D, cytokine release of TGF-beta and IL-10. Rahul, the correct answer here is C. Increase MHC2 binding with T-cell receptor. Staph toxic shock syndrome characteristically has TST1 exotoxin, which is present in all of the menstrual cases of toxic shock syndrome and about half of the non-menstrual cases of toxic shock syndrome. The interaction and stabilization between the antigen-presenting cells and the T-cell receptors causes a massive cytokine storm, and thus this superantigen can be one of the major virulence factors behind the multi-system involvement we see in toxic shock syndrome. Interestingly, one of the cytokines which is released in this syndrome is TNF, and this inhibits neutrophil function. In fact, data suggests that TST1 in addition to TNF do not engender staph to have a purulent response, and this may be due to the lack of PNM uh, recruitment. As you think about a case, Rahul, what would be your differential? This is an interesting differential. However, given our symptomatology and disease progression, I would focus my differential to infectious entities first. These include, but are not limited to, disseminated meningococcemia, look at the type of rash and the lack of meningismus, rocky-mounted spotted fever, also related to any travel history which she may have, leptospirosis, dengue fever, typhoid fever, and now staph scalded skin syndrome. Now, 
Staphs scalded skin syndrome may have similar nomenclature and pathogenesis to toxic shock syndrome. However, they are slightly different. In fact, a review article published in Clinical Infectious Diseases in 2006 highlighted some key differences between staph scalded skin syndrome and toxic shock syndrome. Remember, guys, this, it, these two entities are different. These included age, as patients with toxic shock syndrome are older with the median age of 12 years, compared to patients who have staph scalded skin syndrome who are younger. Think about toddler age. Presence of bullae that rupture with light pressure, Nikolsky sign positive due to staph scalded skin syndrome, exfoliative toxin, are key features which stratify this condition from toxic shock syndrome. And finally, there is a lack of mucous membrane involvement in staph scalded skin syndrome. And remember that when you're thinking about staph scalded skin syndrome, it's all about the exfoliative toxin. So these patients are going to have a lot of desquamation and they're typically going to be babies. Rahul, you make a good point here. I also want to add that sepsis or septic shock due to other pathogens is important to have at the top of your differential. Gram-negative sepsis or sepsis due to fungal pathogens or even culture-negative sepsis may classically not be associated with rash, but making the empiric diagnosis at the bedside upon presentation is the key. Okay, so we have covered differentials related to fever and rash that are infectious in nature. Are there other broad categories to consider? Yes, inflammatory causes are important also to pursue in this case. Drug reactions may have fever, systemic symptoms, and rash. This includes Steven Johnson syndrome, toxic epidermal necrolysis, or DRESS syndrome. I would also add COVID-19-related multi-inflammatory syndrome to our differential and its close mimicker Kawasaki disease. Especially when a child presents with a prodrome of fevers for about five days and systemic signs of inflammation, you should think about Kawasaki disease and also its severe manifestations, namely coronary artery involvement and myocarditis. Rahul, that was a great differential. Before we continue, we want to revisit some key points from our case that narrowed our differential to staph toxic shock syndrome and cover some brief points regarding this condition. All right. So firstly, we classically are tested in board exams of the retained tampon leading to toxic shock syndrome. However, in actuality, menstrual cases of toxic shock syndrome are on the decline. This decrease may be explained by the withdrawal of highly absorbent tampons and the absence of a particular substance, polyacrylic rayon-containing products, from the market. And these were implicated in the prior studies related to toxic shock syndrome. Nonetheless, doing a pelvic exam is really important to assess for retained tampons, especially in our case, a menstruating female. At least half of reported staphylococcal toxic shock syndrome cases are not related to menstruation, and thus a variety of clinical circumstances can be associated. In our case, post-procedure or surgical wound infections can be a trigger, but the literature also cites other conditions, burns, respiratory infections, such as the flu. In fact, in a recent report, about 5,000 cases of toxic shock syndrome throughout the whole decade had an increased proportion and relation to surgical procedures rather than these menstrual cases. Now, the case fatality rate for non-menstrual toxic shock syndrome was about 5%. Rahul, secondly, I also want to highlight 
streptococcal toxic shock syndrome. Surgical triggers may be common in history, but in diving into the literature, it seems that streptococcal toxic shock syndrome has a more of a virulent nature. These patients present with myonecrosis and a necrotizing fasciitis picture, often with no visible break in the skin. Uh, they can have DIC, liver dysfunction, and ARDS. Typically, you will isolate group A strep from a normally sterile site, but I want to highlight this phenomena as these patients can present with vascular collapse. Let's conclude by going through a diagnostic and management framework for toxic shock syndrome. Pradeep, if you had to work up this patient with suspected toxic shock syndrome, what would be your general diagnostic approach? Rahul, I would send routine blood tests such as a complete blood count with a differential, a comprehensive metabolic panel, a serum lactate, a blood gas, and a DIC panel is where I would start. In our case with myositis, getting a CPK is reasonable. Microbiological testing, including two sets of blood cultures, urine analysis, and urine cultures will be important. I would also consider getting a wound culture if there's a surgical site abnormality along with the inflammatory markers. I would also like to point out, Rahul, that uh, consulting our infectious disease colleagues early in this process would be very important. That's a great point. I also want to highlight that it is important to do a pelvic exam and nasopharyngeal exam to isolate any foreign bodies or any retained bodies that can really help you establish some source control. Of note, blood and sterile site cultures are positive for staph aureus in less than 5% of toxic shock cases, and testing for TSST1 is typically going to be an academic exercise and is not routinely sent. So Rahul, if a history, physical, and diagnostic investigation has led us to toxic shock syndrome as a diagnosis in our patient, what would be a general management framework? Great question. I first off want to say that there have been very few randomized control trials or evidence-based guidelines defining treatment regimens. You will not go wrong in the early stages to parallel the management of septic shock. This includes aggressive fluid resuscitation and use of vasopressors or ionotropes, initiation of broad-spectrum antibiotics, and finally, supportive measures such as mechanical ventilation or renal replacement therapy when indicated. In fact, in a paper published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 2005, renal dysfunction and CNS involvement were common and they occur more often in non-menstrual cases of toxic shock syndrome. So Rahul, I think a key element here is to support end organ dysfunction and also treat the underlying cause. In this case, it is the source control. So Rahul, I have another question for you. What antibiotic regimen would you recommend for a patient with toxic shock syndrome? I think clindamycin and vancomycin would be a great initial therapy. Studies have cited that the addition of clindamycin as a protein synthesis inhibitor can have the potential to suppress toxin production. Now, clindamycin is often added for its in vitro ability to suppress TSST toxin production. And there is a paper which shows that clindamycin may actually reduce mortality in patients with streptococcal toxic shock syndrome. This was well-defined in an older study published in 1997, which showed that TSST1 production is completely inhibited by clindamycin in a logarithmic and stationary phase growth. As you mentioned, Pradeep, 
I would also encourage us as clinicians to consult our pediatric infectious disease colleagues as their invaluable expertise and following of culture data is crucial. So now, once we get our culture data, and remember, we started with clindamycin and vancomycin, if you get MSSA as your likely entity causing toxic shock syndrome, you can actually narrow your antibiotic regimen, take off the vancomycin, and use nafcillin or oxisone. Pradeep, do you think that there is a role for IVIG in toxic shock syndrome? Rahul, that's an excellent question. No trials evaluating the use of IVIG in staph toxic shock syndrome have been identified. However, there's a lot of like uh, case reports showing efficacy in streptococcal toxic shock syndrome. In vitro data shows that staph aureus superantigens are less effectively inhibited by IVIG than streptococcal antigens. The AAP Red Book suggests that there could be a potential role for IVIG in patient with fluid refractory toxic shock syndrome as IVIG may play a crucial role in neutralizing the toxins. You should consider IVIG in patients who are critically ill, unresponsive to fluid resuscitation, have an undrainable infection, or present with pulmonary edema and oliguria. And finally, to add, the use of steroids in uh, toxic shock syndrome is very controversial. There seems to be a potential survival benefit in animal models. In vitro studies show that dexamethasone suppresses TST1-induced cytokine production. In a study published in 1984 in, in JAMA, early adjunctive treatment with corticosteroids may be associated with reduced severity and duration of toxic shock syndrome symptoms, but not decrease mortality. The current AAP Red Book does not mention a role for steroids. Pradeep, this was a great discussion today. And let's highlight some key objective takeaways from today's episode. Number one, staphylococcal toxic shock syndrome refers to a severe, abrupt onset systemic illness caused by infection or colonization with toxin-producing strains of staphylococcal aureus. You need to watch out for fever, erythrodermal rash, as well as multi-organ system involvement defined as greater than three organ systems. Point number two is that TSST1 is the notable superantigen toxin which causes massive cytokine release and can lead to this end organ dysfunction. Really, to mitigate this risk, you have to identify the source and stratify your condition to menstrual causes versus non-menstrual causes. Finally, vancomycin and clindamycin is a good go-to as your initial antibiotic management. And in some cases, there may be a role for IVIG and corticosteroids. This concludes our episode on toxic shock syndrome. We hope you found value in a short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimenia. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you. Thank you.